0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Gania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 11th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Last August, Clifton Amherder, being 90 years old at the time, had taken a bad fall in his home. At that time, he realized that he could really not live alone safely any longer and we brought him here to Florida to stay with us. In the meantime, just before his accident, Clifton had sent me three new short essays to proofread, which I never got to until now. So we will begin trying to make that up to him with this evening's presentation. Here we have Clifton Emmeheiser with us once again to present and discuss one of those short essays which he had titled, The Pitfalls Found in Biblical Commentaries, Lexicons, and Dictionaries. Hello, Clifton. Thank you for being here.
1: Hello. I'm I'm glad to be here.
0: How are you feeling? How are you doing here in Florida?
1: I'm doing real well.
0: How much time have you spent on the beach since you've been here? (laughs) Zero. We'll have to try to change that. (laughs) It seems to me that Clifton may have planned for this to be another multi-part series of essays, since while the title is very broad in scope, here he mainly focuses on the rather recently developed denominational doctrines of futurism and preterism, and how they have affected modern Christian thinking, which is reflected throughout the popular Bible studies and and commentaries. So while Clifton has treated this topic in the past, here it is presented in a somewhat different context, and he goes further than he has before to show how recent these and other ideas about Scripture have been developed by certain denominations. Do you have anything to say about that? Did did, Did you really plan to do other segments of the series?
1: Uh, I, I don't really have that planned. Uh, however long it takes, I guess.
0: Well, well, if um, if anybody can, if if anybody in Christian identity can talk about the pitfalls found in the Bible commentaries and the lexicons, it's probably you because you've read more Bible commentaries and lexicons than I've ever seen. Yeah. Now we shall present Clifton's essay along with our own comments and and discussion, and and hopefully we'll get Clifton engaged in in some of that. I I don't know if you want to start reading the first couple of paragraphs there.
1: It seems to me that, oh, okay. Well, some of the biblical helps are better than others while some of these biblical helps are better than others even the best have some serious errors for instance some bible cross references can lead one astray so let's consider some of the better center references found in a few bibles If you have a King James Version Bible with the proper center reference, you can very readily prove 2 seed line teaching with it, for it will take you from one supporting verse of Scripture to another almost endlessly on the subject. Not that the King James Version is an especially advisable Bible to use for uh, study, as it is alleged to contain approximately 27,000 translation mistakes.
0: That, that assertion it is repeated a lot in Christian identity circles, right? That the King James Version has 27,000 errors. That the, um, <clears throat> yeah, Comparé made that assertion. It, it's in, I just looked it up a few moments ago. It, it's in part eight of his series on a revelation. Comparé said that the King James had 27,000 translation mistakes. Swift may have also made the assertion. And, and it's hard for me to fathom that there were 27,000 errors in the King James Version. Because there's only 31,000 verses. That, that's an error in in almost 90% of the verses. That's
1: pretty high.
0: That's Well, well if it's true, it, it is pretty high. There's only 31,102 verses in the King James Version. Now, now, I imagine every word in the book of Esther is mistranslated because the book of Esther don't even belong in the Bible, right? But perhaps... That the assertion becomes a little more plausible when things are pointed out, such as the substitution of, of the name Yahweh with a phrase "the Lord." Right? That that error—that's an error. It happened over seventy-two hundred times. Right. In, in in the Old Testament alone. So there's seventy-two hundred mistranslations right there. Right. But it's still hard to imagine twenty-seven thousand errors in the translation. I don't know where Compare got the number from, but I would like to know.
1: I don't know either.
0: I, I'd like to know how he arrived at it, because he did use that number, 27,000. So there's only 31,000 verses. <laughs> the King James could hardly bat 100. <laughs> they could hardly get 10%. So I don't, I don't know if that number is true. I know there are a lot of errors in translation in the King James Bible, no doubt. I just don't know that the number is 27,000. seems like a high number.
1: The King James Version center reference system I am referring to was produced by the opinions of many contributing scholars and theologians. Most of the older Bibles have this proper center reference system. I have a King James uh, version published by the world publishing company during uh, the mid fifties, which has the proper center reference center reference system, I checked uh, a world Bible recently uh, at a christian uh bookstore and it had been uh, corrupted from uh the former one I have. I also have a large Southwestern Bible which has the desirable center reference system. I understand some of the Bibles printed uh, by Dove Incorporated, Nashville, Tennessee, have this uh, preferred center reference uh, also. Twenty years ago, one could purchase a King James Version Zondervan Classic Reference Bible uh, with this more satisfactory center reference system. The cross-reference system. No,
0: that, that's my my notes. My notes there. Okay. After your paragraph, and and I hope we discuss this a little bit. Yeah, you know, the cross-reference system to which you're, you're referring here, it's better than most, but it's not perfect as it falls short of teaching Israel identity. And I'm going to point out some some cross-references that it makes, which I don't believe are correct. They're good, but they're not correct. And, and some of the cross-references that perhaps it should have made, that, that I would make, right? But it does the, the cross-reference system that you're met, you're referencing does it does not make the mistake of connecting Matthew twenty-one forty-three with Acts eighteen six, and many cross references connect those two verses, and they take Paul's statement about the gospel taking the gospel to the so-called Gentiles entirely out of context. You know where Paul says to the, the leaders of a certain synagogue in Acts chapter 18 that he was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles? And by that, he really means to the people of the assembly, because there are several instances in the subsequent passages where he's in other synagogues preaching the gospel. But the, the mainstream Christians take that out of context to try to prove that somehow Paul is going to Gentiles and won't go to the Jews anymore. But he's in a synagogue. Or in, in later in the chapter. And in the next chapter. In the next chapter. He's in a synagogue. It, it's. Um, that They really take that out of context. And that's one of the first things I check. When I check a, a, a cross reference system. I go to Matthew 21.43. And that's where Christ says. That the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And I see if it's cross reference to Acts 18.6. And a lot of the newer cross-references do that. They're teaching replacement theology. This cross-reference system you're talking about doesn't do that. But it, it still doesn't cross-reference Matthew 21, 43 correctly. And, and I'm going to point that out. Paul continued to visit synagogues long after he made that statement in Acts 18, verse 6. So it can't be justly interpreted in the manner which the denominational churches interpret it. So instead, this system that Clifton refers to only connects Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, with Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. And that's a halfway step, and I'm going to show that's a halfway step, right? In my opinion, Matthew 21, Matthew 21, 43 it should be cross-referenced to Micah chapter four verse eight, and we're going to see that. And Matthew chapter eight verse eleven should be cross-referenced to Isaiah chapter forty-three. And once we see that, Christian identity is clear. But only an identity Christian can see it. it it's kind of like a a a, um, a a circle that you're trapped in. If you don't have the key to identity, you're never going to see what the proper cross-references should be. Let's read Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And I believe that that should be cross-referenced to Micah chapter 4, verse 8. If Christ is telling these people in Judea that the kingdom of God shall be taken from them, We have to see where God said it was going, right? So when we go to Micah chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, and a daughter is a colony in scripture, when it's speaking about nations and cities, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh had planned that the kingdom was going to be removed from Jerusalem in Palestine, and it would come to the daughter of Jerusalem, which in Scripture is a colony. So we have to locate that daughter of Jerusalem to see the nation bringing forth the fruits thereof that Christ spoke about in, in Matthew chapter 21. Right. Right. Do you have any comments on that (laughs) besides your (laughs) agreement? Now, Matthew chapter eight, verses 11 and 12 are speaking of something slightly different. Uh, Do do you want to read them?
1: And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom, is is this right
0: here? Right, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness.
1: It seems like there should be this, but the children... Of the kingdom of this king of this kingdom shall be.
0: Oh no, it doesn't say this kingdom. It says that the children of the king. I believe I did. I not check my own translation shall here.
1: Shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
0: I see what you mean about the thinking that should say the children of this kingdom. I'm gonna go check the. Uh, the Christian New Testament real quick because for this program, I took all of my citations from the King James Version
2: mm-hmm.
0: because I'm not that... Um, I, I I could be humble enough not to insist on using my own translation <laughs> even though I know that it doesn't have 27,000 mistakes. <laughs> well, we're going to see this in a moment. Here's the Gospel of Matthew and let me go down to chapter 8. Oops, I can't find chapter 8, I'm sorry. This is a long page to scroll. I have the whole Gospel of Matthew here in in one shot. Chapter 8, verse 11. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outermost darkness. I I don't know where it says this kingdom. It says the sons of the kingdom in, in my translation. Mm -hmm. which i'm confident is correct if it says thee it says thee but the the bottom line it is this and and the cross-reference system that you talk about it comes close but it's not quite there and and that's why i'm going through this this that this passage in um Matthew chapter 21, 43. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The, your center reference, the, the, the traditional old center reference that you're talking about does connect that to Matthew chapter eight, verse 12, where it says, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it should have connected it to micah 4 8 matthew chapter 8 verse 11 where it says and i say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and sit down with abraham isaac and jacob that may be a secondary reference to matthew 21 43 but it should be also a secondary reference to micah chapter 4 verse 8 and matthew 21 verse 43. Where the kingdom it shall be removed from you and given to a nation bearing its fruits, that should be the primary reference to Micah 4.8, where it says, The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. But Matthew 8:11 should be cross-referenced to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 3 through 7, where it says that many shall come from the east and the west. And I'm I'm going through this to show that. The best cross-references, even the cross-reference that you're talking about, that does teach two seed line, still doesn't teach Christian identity, and still doesn't connect these clear passages from the Old Testament that line up perfectly with passages from the New Testament, that must be talking about the same things because we're dealing with the same God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3 says, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee, since thou wast precious in my sight. And it's speaking to the children of Israel. Since thou wast precious in my sight, and thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee, therefore I will give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. That should be cross-referenced to Matthew 8:11. What where it says that many shall come from the east and the west. How could they not be cross-referenced? But they're not. Mm-hmm. I don't know any Bible that cross-references those passages. I've never seen any center reference system cross-reference those passages. I will bring my seed from the east and gather thee from, from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not brack. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now that should be cross-referenced <clears throat> to Genesis chapter 48 and 49, where we see that the horns of Joseph will push his people to the ends of the earth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you make those two cross-references, You have to teach Christian identity. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Just two cross-references. That's it. Even everyone that is called by thy name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Yahweh talking to the children. That's where it should be cross-referenced. But the center references never do that. Not even the best ones ever do that. And it's so crystal clear. Then Matthew eight twelve should be cross-referenced to Jude 4, 6. And they don't do this. Matthew eight twelve says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you cross-reference to that to Jude 4, 6, you complete the understanding of two seed lines. Because Jude verse four, verses four through six, Jude verse four says, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And here's the important part, because this connects them to the Antichrist, as John explains it, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that connects those people that Jude's talking about who crept in unawares to the Antichrist. And that's why the kingdom of heaven will be taken from them, that the sons of this kingdom will be cast out because they have to be those certain men crept in unawares. Now, from Jude 4 through 6, your cross-reference does great, but it doesn't go all the way. You see what I mean? It, 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 if our cross-reference system had made these steps, then it would be nearly perfect. Because what it does do well is it does connect John 8:44 to Jude 6, and in Jude 6 we learn that those men who crept in unawares are connected to the angels which kept not their first to stay. Now, your cross-reference system goes from Jude 6 to John 844 and talks about the children of the devil, and it makes that cross-reference to those devils in John 844 to Jude 6. But if it only took that one more step, it would have been teaching Christian identity and not just to seed line. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to say. Even the best cross-reference system screws up. If our cross-reference system made these simple steps connecting that, that the scattered children of Israel to the east and the west and the north and the south, to the children that are going to be gathered from the east and the west in Matthew, that's Christian identity. And those people were scattered when Isaiah was writing those words. But it doesn't go that far. If our cross-reference system had made those simple steps, then it would be nearly perfect. Because what it does do well is connect John 8:44 to Jude 6, and Jude 6 to John 8:44, and from John 8:44 it also connects to Matthew 13:38 and the parable of the wheat and the tares. So it teaches two seed line, but if it only went one step further, readers would see in Matthew chapter eight verse twelve where the sons of the kingdom being tossed out are the men crept in unawares in Jude. And then the next step would take that denying the Lord Jesus Christ and connected to the Antichrist of John, of, of the first epistle of John. And that's all too seed line, but it doesn't take that next step. It falls short of that next step. I can't understand why, because it's so crystal clear the children of the devil of John 8, 44, and the tares of Matthew chapter 13, it does connect to the angels who left their first estate in Jude. It just won't connect them to the Jews. They're the ones denying the Lord. <laughs> it's so plain. So if it took one more step, <clears throat> it would identify the Jews. And then if it took Another step beyond that, it would connect Matthew 8:11 11 with Isaiah 43, 6, and the readers would realize that those gathered from the east and the west in Matthew 11 are the dispersed Israelites of Isaiah chapter 43. So even the best cross-reference systems printed in various Bibles does not quite have the whole story, but at least it got right a significant portion of it, the two seed line portion. We could at least see that in it. Many years ago, Clifton, you wrote an essay that was pretty um, detailed. It was titled, A King James Version Bible with a Good Center Reference Teaches and Proves Two Seed Line," And this is that same system that you're talking about here. And all of the cross-references that you described in that essay, we we agree with, we we have to agree with, and they do teach two seed lines. I had be I had bought a Bible with that cross-reference system back when I presented your essay in podcast in 2013, and I used that Bible to check certain references tonight to see if it went the rest of the way, and it 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 fell short. It it taught, teaches 2C line, but it falls just one verse short of teaching Christian identity. All it has to do is match it Matthew eight eleven with Isaiah chapter forty three. <laughs> you you might want to um. You, you continue by describing another pitfall, what which is found in a particular Bible edition that uses that that cross reference. So you might want to pick up from there.
1: While <clears> the <throat> well, Zondervan a classic reference Bible has this better than usual center refer- reference system, their latter, later mm-hmm. King James Version study Bible seems to have the same center reference but it is quite difficult to use, and much of their commentary is misleading, especially at uh, Genesis 3.15, where they state in part, quote, the antagonism between people and snakes is used to symbolize the... um, uh outcome of
0: the uh, the, the titanic
1: struggle between God and evil. However, most uh translations translations render the uh snake word as serpent as we see in the enhanced Strong uh, Hebrew dictionary, uh, it's uh, Be Strong's number fifteen seventy. Fifty one seventy five.
0: That's the word nakash.
1: Na- nakash. Uh, Thirty one occurrences. Authorized version translates as serpent uh, thirty one times.
0: So that's pretty consistent.
1: One serpent, snake. Uh, A one serpent, A B, or one B image of serpent. One uh, C fleeing serpent.
0: But well, they're the diction- they're the definitions that the Strong's. Um lists for this word nakash i I don't really agree with them because i think that there's a little more to the meaning of the word but it only um the the enhanced strong's dictionary only translates this word only defines it in the most literal sense a serpent a snake or, or an image of a serpent or a fleeing serpent in in certain contexts that that's only the most literal sense of, of the meaning of the word it doesn't the the original Strong's offers an an Allegorical translation of enchanter it if you remember that and the enhanced Strong's dropped that You went on to, to discuss the Greek definition of the word from the enhanced Strong's Greek dictionary
1: 1404 uh dracon uh Dracone. Dracone. Dracone.
0: would be the, the word we get dragon from dracon.
1: Uh noun masculine, probably from an alternate uh from the uh
0: that that's the word dirkomahy. It's a verb it means to look, and it appears thirteen times. I'll finish this. It it appears thirteen times in the New Testament and they define it in the Enhanced Strong's Dictionary as a dragon, a great serpent, a name for Satan. And, and you go on to, to say that, in fact, the word snake is not found in the King James Version. And it's not, it's not found anywhere. It, it's always a serpent. It, the, the word nakash is always a serpent, and the word drachm is always a dragon. It occurs 13 times, and, and they translated it as dragon 13 times, drakon. From the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament by Gerhard Kittel and Gerhard Friedrich, under the word dragon in Revelation chapter 12, they define it as drakon, which the ancients derived from, meaning the ancient Greek grammarians, derived from the verb drachomahi, which means to look, means serpent, especially a dragon or a sea monster. And they say that in the Revelation, it's a distinctive term for Satan. And, and dragon is used as a term for Satan several times in, in Revelation chapter 12. Once or twice in Revelation chapter 13, again in Revelation 16, again in Revelation chapter 20. You you could read what else they say about it if you want.
1: Of all the beasts, the serpent was regarded as uh, demonic in antiquity, thereby revealing the duality of the uh, ancient conceptions of uh, demons it plays a great part in uh, Persian Babylonian and Assyrian Egyptian and Greek mythology and in uh, essence uh, this rule is always the same it is a, a power of chaos which opposes God either in the beginning or at the end of things, or both. This is uh, Farsi, Parseism. Parsiism. The,
0: the Persian religion.
1: Yeah. Uh, they're, they're either in the, the beginning no. it, or it, at it, the end of things or both.
0: I'm sorry, Th- thus in Parsiism, there is the serpent, Azi Dahaka is the name. So so that's in the Ahura Mazda religion, right? Asi Dahaka. Mm-hmm. And that serpent in, that they are saying that that serpent in the Parsi religion is both at the beginning and at the end i I guess the beginning and the end of of their mythology the genesis and the revelation of their belief system Uh, i'm not that familiar with Parsiism, but that's what they seem to be saying Mm -hmm. that the serpent was in the beginning and will be in the end where the bible says that yahweh and and jesus christ were were at the beginning and will be at the end right (laughs) So perhaps before I do another Revelation commentary, I'll have to look into Parsiism and get a better um, a, a better perspective of what Christ is insisting when He says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end." Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because if the pagans believed that the serpent was the beginning and the end, now we're understanding the Revelation a little better, right? <laughs> I think so, and and why Christ made that assertion. In in Babylonia, the serpent was Tiamat and, and Labu with many similar figures. In Egypt, the serpent was Apophis, the main symbol of the typhon, with many others like the crocodile. In Greece, the python, which Apollo defeats the serpent which cadmus slays and many mixed figures like typhus or typhon yet you know that the greeks had a lot of and and the babylonians too that the mythology wasn't always consistent and they had different stories about different gods with the same serpent it, in in one greek legend zeus ejects the, the the typhon the typhon from heaven and casts it down And I think it was Strabo of of Cappadocia, Strabo the geographer, who said that you could still see the place where the serpent landed in the desert in Syria. (laughs) But in, in other Greek myths, it was Apollo that defeated the python. And when Apollo defeated the python, he got the power of divination from the python. So the Temple at Delphi was where the oracle of the Python was that belonged to Apollo. And the priestess was called the Pythia after Python, the Pythia. And she would give um, prophecy that was attributed to the power that Apollo got from the serpent. There's a lot of things in Greek mythology and these other mythologies as we shall see, because I'm going to talk about this in, in a moment, that there's a lot of things in, in these mythologies that actually substantiate things that we see in the Bible. If you want to finish your paragraph.
1: There seems to have been a similar um, general similar general estimation of the red color ascribed to the serpent at Revelation 12.3 uh, on it, on general estimation of the uh, red color ascribed to the serpent at Revelation 12.3 oh,
0: on Greek soil
1: on Greek soil the significance of the fight against the serpent as the original battle of deity against the power of chaos is greatly observed by the lowering <clears throat> of the um,
0: it it's obscured by the lowering of the stories to the level of sagas yes. that the greeks that the greeks didn't that they didn't assign quite the same significance of the battles between the, the 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 serpent and and the other gods as the sumerians and the babylonians and the, the assyrians did before them that's basically what it's saying
1: on the other hand the other aspect of the serpent as a demonic beast emerges more strongly in babylonian in babylon and egypt uh, namely that it is the sacred animal uh this dual capacity reveals the dual nature of the ancient demonology generally
0: and, and i have a lot to say about that and and first let, let me say that it, it's not really fair that the, the people that you're quoting here that the source you used I, I mean they did do okay with the serpent this theological dictionary of the New Testament they did okay with it but it's not really fair for them to say that the the, the aspect of the serpent as a demonic beast emerges more strongly in Babylon and Egypt and and that's because the Babylonian religion is very very similar to the Assyrian religion that was before it, and a lot of the the, the inscriptions, the mythology found in the Babylonian inscriptions is almost identical to the same mythology found in Assyrian inscriptions, so the Babylonians inherited a lot of their religion from the Assyrians is what I'm saying. First, before I start on this serpent thing, because I want to talk about this a little bit, because you, you did good to uncover something here with this serpent and this dragon. First, I would cross-reference the dragon of the revelation to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. And it says, in that day, meaning a day in the future, Yahweh, with his sword and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, that's not talking about... It's not
1: talking about an ocean or a body of water.
0: Right, it's It's not a body of water. talking about a
1: sea of people.
0: Exactly. It's not talking about no fish, no big fish that pissed God off. It's not... I would cross-reference the dragon of Revelation to that Leviathan, the piercing serpent in the sea that Yahweh intends to punish in Isaiah 27. And then I would cross-reference Isaiah chapter 27, verse 2, which says, In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. Sing ye unto her the whore of Babylon a vineyard of red wine. That's the way I interpret that. I would cross-reference that to the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation chapter 19. That's how I would interpret that. That is because the serpent and the dragon described as being in the sea in Isaiah 27.1 is, as you just said, not a literal serpent or dragon in a literal sea, but rather it is the collective serpent the collective Satan, which is mingled into the sea of the world's people. And there's more of them than there are of us. (laughs) Since the dragon or serpent is mentioned here in connection with Babylonian and Egyptian religion, maybe we should discuss that briefly before we continue. I perceive that these uses of the words in those pagan myths fits very well into the biblical accounts. And before I start, I want to say one more thing. Let's back up to that, that this quote from this um, theological dictionary of the New Testament, where it talks about Genesis 3.15. I'm sorry. This is the note from your Thomas Nelson King James study Bible that uses the good cross-reference system. And it says in Genesis chapter 315 that the antagonism between people and snakes is used to symbolize the outcome of the titanic struggle between God and evil. But Genesis chapter 315 isn't first talking about a struggle between God and evil. It's talking about a struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they're way off on that. And, and I just had to go back to that, just a moment, to, to see how they, how they um, really screw up that interpretation, right? In the Sumerian and Babylonian legends, which have among themselves, they do have some divergent versions among themselves that don't really agree with one another in different myths. But for generally, Tiamat, Tiamat is a great serpent, and Tiamat is a serpent, but Tiamat is a primordial being and a creator god of this world. Now, we might reject that on the surface, but it makes sense once you understand um, Genesis and the Revelation from a two-seed line perspective. So Tiamat is a creator god of this world, although Tiamat is feminine. And Tiamat is said to have brought forth the other pagan gods of the Babylonian Pantheon, which were monsters. They were all monsters. What we have here is the Enoch story from the opposite perspective. If you really think about it, the Babylonian mythology is the Enoch story from the other side of the coin, from their side. That's the way I see it. it. It's really good once you understand that it, it all fits in. So Tiamat was ultimately killed. This serpent that was the creator of all these gods and monsters was ultimately killed by Marduk. Marduk was the son of the storm. Marduk was the storm god and the son of Enki, and Enki was the son of Anu the supreme God of heaven. Tiamat didn't create heaven, Tiamat created this world. Well, if the fallen angels corrupted the earth, they basically created what we know as the world. They didn't create it materially, but they're the ones that are responsible for the organizational mess, the chaos that it was in, and the serpent is connected to chaos in the legends. You see what I'm getting at? The gods of this world are devils. So here we see some Christian truth. And the devils were created by a mortal and corrupt being, Tiamat, the serpent, that was able to be killed. Those responsible for creating the gods of this world were slain by Marduk, who was seen by the, by, by the Assyrians, by the, by the Akkadians, as the son of the God of heaven. To a great degree. This accords with the teachings of the New Testament, even though the names are different. This accords with the teachings of the New Testament only from the opposite perspective. But we should expect that from the pagans. We should expect the pagans to have the opposite perspective. They tell the story from the side of the devil, in other words. In Egyptian legend, the serpent, the serpent in the night sky, the constellation Draco, the serpent in the night sky attempted to devour the sun god each evening as it passed into the netherworld. But the sun god was always successfully defended by his son, Set, who defeated the dragon every night. And the sun god emerged from the netherworld to arise again the next morning. The Christian implications here are several, and I don't think we need to discuss them at length. But I already discussed this several years ago in a presentation titled Primordial Two Seed Line that I did at the end of my Pragmatic Genesis series. I already discussed these serpents of antiquity and how they really do correlate with the Bible, even though it's the stories are told from that different perspective, right? The legends of the Greeks regarding the serpent are much too late for our consideration in that context, because we can ascertain that the Greeks were influenced by Hebrew scriptures even before any of their own legends were ever set down in writing, because the Greeks didn't start writing until the 7th century B.C., However, they told of a serpent cast down from heaven. They also attributed the origins of the powers of divination and sorcery to the serpent. And the children of Israel, of course, were prohibited from engaging in those things. <clears throat> so it's our assertion that all of these legends, which ultimately had a common origin in the most ancient myths of our Adamic race, They agree in one way or another with the biblical accounts, and they actually help to establish that both our Bible and our Christian identity perspective is true, since we can see that the other Adamic nations of the Near East had these similar themes woven into their own elaborate legends. But to properly understand them, and not be led away astray by the denominational commentaries, the identity understanding of Scripture is a necessary prerequisite. If you don't have our identity understanding of Scripture, you're going to be led away by these commentaries. Oh, the dragon. Oh, well, the Babylonians talked about the dragon. So the Bible's only using it as a symbol. It doesn't really mean anything. The, the 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 greeks talked about a dragon and they had silly stories and it doesn't really mean anything this means a lot and it substantiates the scripture to to me so so now after these several digressions what we can continue with your essay where you continue to um to discuss genesis three fifteen. <laughs>
1: The King James Study Bible published by Thomas Nelson does though so make a better than average observation on Genesis three fifteen, which supports two seed line doctrine, uh, thusly and it will be edited out of Necessity.
0: Well, well, you just added some words in order to qualify our perspective of some of the things they were saying, right?
1: Yeah. Did I read that then? Yes. Uh, That'd be uh, Genesis three fifteen, I believe. This verse has long been uh, recognized as the first uh, Masonic prophecy. Of, of the Bible, thus it is also. It also contains the first glimpse of the gospel protovangelum. Uh it, it reveals three essential truths: one, that Satan is the enemy of the human, sick white Adamic. Race, and I have uh, white atomic in brackets, uh, explaining why God uh, put enmity uh, related to the word enemy between Satan and the woman, to that He would place a spiritual, six racial barrier between. The seed of Satan's people, and the seed of God's people. Any more of that?
0: Well, well, okay. Let, let, let me um, let, let me read the rest, of the the rest of this because I think I could <clears throat> better explain what's going on here if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. That you're you're quoting this Thomas Nelson Study Bible, King James Study Bible, and showing that. They do have glimpses of two seed line truth in their definition, but you added some words in, and, and I really, in, in order to explain our position on it and, and to get to demonstrate the truth of it, so I'm going to better um elucidate which words that you added. It, it says this verse, meaning Genesis 315, has long been recognized as the first messianic prophecy of the Bible. So so, thus it also contains the first glimpse of the gospel. So that is called the pro, Proto-Evangelion. Proto-Evangelion means first gospel, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it means. So that's what they label a, a lot of the denominational Christians, and even Bertrand Camperet, Clifton Emma Heiser believe Genesis 3.15 to be the first gospel in that sense. And they go on to say that Genesis 3.15 reveals three essential truths. The first one being that Satan is the enemy of the human race. And in brackets, you put the white Adamic race because we know that this isn't the entire human race. And and then that it explains why God put enmity between the meaning Satan and the woman And Clifton noted that that's related to the word enemy, that enmity and enemy are related words. And then they say that he would place a spiritual barrier, and Clifton makes a remark there that that should say racial barrier, but Thomas Nelson Publishers doesn't understand that. Their editors don't understand that, that's for sure. Between thy seed... And Thomas Nelson's editors have in parentheses there, Satan's people. So they recognize that thy seed are Satan's people and her seed. And they have a bracket there, a a parenthetical remark that says God's people. So they recognize that the seed of the woman are God's people. And that the representative seed of the woman's And this is complicated because Clifton has a parenthetical remark, the woman's collective seed, but they have a parenthetical remark saying a human being, Christ. So they see the woman's seed as being only Christ, and that defies the meaning of the word seed, doesn't it? It it defies the meaning of the word seed entirely because the word is a collective noun. It's always a collective noun. It never refers to a, a single seed. Would deliver the death blow to Satan, but in doing so would be bruised himself. And then they go on to say that it shall bruise, or literally crush, thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel, refers to Christ's bruising on the cross, which... Led and clifton has a note it will lead to the eventual crushing of satan and his kingdom so the thomas nelson people believe that satan and his kingdom are already crushed right they use that past tense which led to the eventual crushing of satan and his kingdom and even though they admit that the seed of the woman are god's people they still want to limit the woman's seed, the, the representative seed of the woman as being Christ. That they're not accepting that it, it's racial even though they think that the woman's seed are God's people. They're still denying the racial aspect, aren't they? Yes. So so Clifton said that he added that the term collective seed to the definition, because the Thomas Nelson editors did say that the seed of the serpent were Satan's people and the seed of the woman were God's people. So they make half a, it, it's like a half an admission, isn't it? It's a half admission, but they won't right. quite go all the way. By saying Satan's people and God's people, they admit there are two collective groups, while at the same time, they nevertheless they nevertheless attempt to limit the woman's seed to a single individual, which is Christ. Then they also attempt to deny the racial nature of those two groups, claiming that it's only spiritual and denying the natural meaning of the word for seed. And, and this Clifton is illustrating that this is one of it, it's a common and important pitfall that we find in these study Bibles, right? Right. I know that you esteem Genesis 3.15 to be an allusion to Christ, and that's fine. But, you know, and, and we should probably discuss this because I don't think we ever did. I have a slightly different idea. Christ informs us himself that when we die in this world, that we pass into life, right? He says, if your eye offends you, tear it out, because it's better to pass into life with one eye right? than to burn in the fires of Gehenna. So when we, as far as I'm concerned, he's saying that when we die in this world, we pass into life. So if the Adamic man is eternal, then pursuing and persecuting and slaying him in this world may be represented by a bruising of his heel, because when he's dead, he passes into life. So if you get killed by the enemies, they're really only bruising your heel because you escape into life. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm yeah, trying to draw right? a picture of that, right? right? And that's true of Christ, who was resurrected from the dead. But in the end, it's true of every Adamic man, woman, and child. It's true of the entire race, of the entire collection of the woman's seed, because they shall all ultimately also be resurrected. So the bruising of the heel to me is symbolic of the fact that we are going to escape death, ultimately. That's, but the crushing of the head, the serpent seed is never going to escape death. <laughs> They're going to die and stay dead. <laughs> That's how I see that. I, I see that as, as a poetic indication that the woman's seed will escape death. Because only the heel is bruised. I don't know if you can agree with that or not. Or, or... That
1: sounds reasonable.
0: <laughs> now, Clifton discusses the same Bible edition, this, this um, Thomas Nelson Study Bible, in regard to the Revelation.
1: Well, the King James uh, Study Bible, uh, marketed by Thomas Nelson publishers, did better than average on Genesis 315. They really botched it up uh, and went uh, far astray on Revelation 12, 7 through 9, stating, The the vision of the war between uh, heaven anticipates Satan's exclusion from heaven and his uh, restrictions to the earth during the last half of the uh, tribulation. Michael, the archangel, is the leader of God's holy angels, uh, C.F. Dan, Dan, Daniel 10 31 and 21.
0: Daniel 10.13 and Daniel 10 verse
1: 21. At the middle of the uh, tribulation period God will uh, empower Michael and his forces to cast Satan and the forces out of the access to heaven so that Satan must uh, therefore confine the activities to the uh, earthly sphere. He he is given uh, four uh, distinctions. One, dragon. Uh, Picture his uh, monstrous character as the enemy of God to serpent uh, connects him with the clever and deception uh, uh, of Eve in Genesis 3, free devil means slanderer. Um,
0: They're referring us to verse 10 in in Revelation chapter 12, right? Yeah. In relation to the slander,
1: Satan means adversary, Uh, compare first Peter five, eight. He he also uh, delivers the
0: deceives the whole world, which you have a whole
1: world world.
0: So so they're saying that Satan has four distinctions. A, A dragon pictures his monstrous character as the enemy of God. And, and the serpent connects him with the clever deception of Eve. And, and I'll contend with that in, in a moment, but that they're basically taking it for granted that Satan is in heaven right now. They're taking that for granted because they're saying that at the second half of the tribulation... That Michael and his forces cast Satan and his forces out of access to heaven, and they're putting that tribulation in the future. Mm-hmm. So they're basically saying that Satan is in heaven now. Yeah,
1: it's futurism.
0: It, it's futurism, but now I know where Don Spears got his stupid idea that Satan was still in heaven. I, I don't know what these. <laughs> what, I don't know what these sources, what these resources teach. Right? I never went through them, Clifton. I just learned from scratch in, in prison, right? I I had a Bible without notes. And I I just read the Bible, right? I never read all the stupid notes. So so I, I think I was blessed not to have the notes, right? I, I really do. Yeah. But the so, so the these um mainstream commentaries this is thomas nelson commentary that i i looked today and one of the the main editors of this thomas nelson study bible was jerry falwell that there were about a dozen of them that had credit but one of the prominent names on the list was jerry falwell
2: yeah
0: and and i looked at that today i didn't write it in these notes but i looked at it and he was the the only name I recognized, but I'm sure that all the others. They had a lot of alphabets after their names, uh, a lot of alphabet letters yeah. and periods. So so I'm sure they were all um, doctors of divinity and theology and all that stuff, right? So Jerry Falwell was the name that stood out. So we'll blame it all on him, right? <laughs> He's a zazzle. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll pin it all. We'll pin all this on him. But um, I couldn't believe that they're still teaching. When I read this in preparation for this evening, I couldn't believe that they're still teaching that Satan is still in heaven. But I should have known better because we have so many Baptist-ass clowns and identity that teach that Satan is still in heaven. So now I know where to get it from. But forgive me for being ignorant of the denominational Protestant teachings. I I just don't know. I, I don't even know if the Catholics still teach that. But then again, they invented futurism, right? So they probably do. (laughs) Anyway, everything here is, of of course, in part true. Notice how the verse discusses the text from the passage of Revelation chapter 12, but it does not follow the text. The plain language of the Revelation does not merely connect Satan with the clever deception of Genesis chapter 3 rather it explicitly identifies satan as the serpent of genesis chapter three that's a huge difference the language in the in in the the text explicitly identifies satan as the serpent of genesis three where they're saying oh it just connects them it it just connects them it's not really the same one in other words right there's multiples so if, it, if the language of the text explicitly identifies the Satan of Revelation 12 with the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, it cannot be describing something which is to happen in the future. It must instead be describing something which happened already in the past, just as other things described in that same chapter had clearly happened in the past. And a little further on in your reply to this statement, when we get to it you do elaborate on that but I think it could also uh, I think we should also discuss it here a little bit or 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 to some degree and this is um this is important to me because Mark Downey right and and you know that Mark had just passed Mark Downey was a good friend and I really believe he did his best to understand us but he never quite got to C line while he recently passed and I don't want to tear the guy apart I have to mention this because in his very last sermon, which I played here in in memory of Mark just a few weeks ago, right? In his very last sermon, which was titled Eyes That See, Mark insisted that the vision of Revelation chapter 12 must describe something which was yet to happen in John's future. Meaning the future relative to 90 AD when the revelation was written right? Mark insisted on that. And now we see that these mainstream Baptist commentators or or Protestant commentators are insisting on that same thing, that this is to happen in the future. But if the events described in the vision in Revelation chapter 12 did not happen in John's past, then two things become evident. First, the child which the dragon attempted to slay, cannot be the Christ child. And we must look for another child who will eventually rule all nations and occupy the throne of God. That border's on blasphemy. That border's on blasphemy. Is there another Christ who's going to rule all nations? Second, if the woman with the 12 stars which can only represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Who else could that represent? If that woman with the 12 stars does not flee to the wilderness in John's past, then we can't be Israel. The Jews must be Israel. Because we couldn't have been dispersed from Israel in John's past, because the woman with the 12 stars doesn't flee until John's future. We can't be Israel. And our Christian identity perspective is false. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have this happening in the future and have that child be the Christ child in the past. So all this in Revelation chapter 12 must have happened in the past. In John's past when he wrote it. If I had seen Mark Downey one more time, I would have had this discussion with him, but Yahweh had other plans. But I did hope to have this discussion with him, and I just didn't see him one more time. Uh, I'm sure he knows it now. (laughs) That might sound arrogant of me, but I'm I'm sure he knows it now. Of course, the commentary which you're addressing here projects all of Revelation chapter 12 into a seven-year period, into half of, into a three-and-a-half-year period, right, That that's far off in the future. And it confuses Jews for saints, and, and Jews are devils. How could they be saints? That can't possibly—and <laughs> and they make other mistakes. But now Clifton responds to the comments in, in in the Thomas Nelson King James Study Bible on Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9—
1: And as much as the Thomas Nelson King James study Bible later also mentions the Antichrist in connection with uh, this passage, we must establish just who such an antichrist such an Antichrist is, or uh, even who they are
0: even the, who they are, because it, it, it John uses it in a plural and a singular, right? Or a multiple antichrist. First John uh,
1: two verse twenty two explains it quite well. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Yeshua is the Christ, he is a he is antichrist that denieth um, the Father and the Son, also first john two uh, uh, two eighteen clears up the uh how many and when thusly, little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come even now. Are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is uh, already, I got in brackets, the last time.
0: And and let me clarify your intention there. You you said that 1 John 2.18 clears up the how many and the when, meaning that 1 John 2.18 tells us how many Antichrists there are and when they would appear. And 1 John 2.18 says that we have heard that Antichrist shall come, but even now, meaning at the time John wrote, there are many Antichrists. So that's the how many? There's many. There's not just one, there's many. And when are they going to come? Well, they're already here, John is telling us. <laughs> they're already here. And those antichrists are the people that deny. That Yahshua is the Christ.
1: They're still doing it.
0: They're still doing it. So they're still antichrists. So we can identify who they are simply from how John defines the term. And even though the cross-reference system that you pointed out to us is the best cross-reference system I've seen in any Bible, it still only has a small part of the story because it doesn't connect this to the Jews. It never connects this to the Jews, ever. And the comments actually protect the Jews. The comments, actually, the comments, the, the rest of the comments, and I'm going to post them, I'm going to post a facsimile of the page that you're talking about with this presentation tonight. The comments that you're pointing out, and and you could only do so much in in one of your essays because you wrote them to fit on a on a single sheet of paper.
1: Yeah, so that's true. I you, did a lot of that.
0: You could only get so much into one. You wrote this to fit on a single sheet of paper, both sides of a single eight and a half by fourteen sheet of paper. So it's only about thirty three hundred words, I think, the original essay. So you can only do so much with it. But when you look at the entire set of comments that they have in that um, Thomas Nelson, King James study Bible on Revelation chapter 12, they go so far as to say that in the tribulation, the Gentiles are going to protect and hide the Jews from the Antichrist. That's their notes. But in reality, the Jews are the Antichrist and it's right there in John chapter 2 <laughs> so so these um study bibles are virtually worthless they're right. s- steering people in a completely wrong direction and and once one realizes that John is identifying the Jews as the antichrists using the plural and even the cross references in certain King James Bibles connect the Jews back to Satan or the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. Then one can understand that the Antichrist has always been here. But they don't make that last connection. They'll take John 8, 44, this cross-reference system that you're using. They'll take John 8:44 and they'll connect it to the fallen angels that left their first estate in Jude 6. And they'll connect it to the wheat and tares in Matthew 13. And they'll connect it to the Genesis 3.15, seed of the serpent, and seed of the woman. But they won't connect it to John chapter 2 and the Antichrist. They don't take that last step. Do they do that on purpose? How could they not take that one last step? Because you know why? I really believe because then the Jews would be the Antichrist and the Jews pay their paychecks. The Jews make out their paychecks.
1: They might might not get a pension or...
0: They can't take that last step. But (laughs) neither does the cross-reference system which Clifton had mentioned earlier and which teaches aspects of Two Seed Line do well concerning this subject. It connects the singular antichrist of 1 John 2.18 to the beast of Revelation 13.11 and to the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And then it connects the plural antichrists of 1 John 2.18 to the false Christ of Matthew chapter 24 in verses 4 and 24, where Jesus Christ warns that in that day, many shall come and say, I am the Christ. And don't believe them. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Yahshua is saying in Matthew 24. So they connect the the, the plural antichrists to the false Christ of Matthew chapter 24. That's what they do in, in the center reference. However, in that passage in Matthew 24, Christ was not speaking of Christ was not speaking of those who were denying that he is the Christ. He is only speaking of others who would pretend to be the Christ, where John tells us that the Antichrist are those who deny that he's the Christ. So they created a lie when they made that cross-reference, because those two verses should not be cross-referenced. John used the term of those who deny that Yahshua is the Christ, not of those who would claim that they're the Christ. far off in the future.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a whole different issue. You continue here with. Um...
1: The King James uh, study Bibles sold by Thomas Nelson Publishers thus uh, wrenched this uh, passage into many uh, unrecognizable previous and to an unrecognizable grievous falsehood. How could uh, Satan still be in heaven when Jude 9 states, yet Michael the archangel, when uh, contending with the devil, he uh, disputed uh, about the body of Moses, uh, durst not bring home. Um not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Yahweh rebuked thee. Sure Moses in uh and antedates Christ's second advent uh and his first advent at the uh, as well. Uh Besides the Satan of Revelation 12:9 was Herod the Great and his uh, Edomite family. Cf. Uh, verse 4. Additionally, the serpent that deceived Eve at Genesis 3, 1 through uh, 6, uh, antedates. Antidate, uh, by far, Revelation 12, seven through nine.
0: So, so, in other words, you're trying to establish through through Jude verse nine and 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 the the text there where it speaks about Michael the archangel contending with the devil about the body of Moses, and and through the fact that Herod the Great is the representative of the great red dragon in in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that can only refer to the Edomite Herod the Great as the one who att- was- attempted to slay the Christ child right. as soon as it was born. That that all proves that Satan has to be here on earth, that Satan can't be in, in heaven. Satan is already here on earth. If Satan's already here on earth, it, if that serpent is already in Genesis chapter 3, then Revelation chapter 12 had to happen in a remote past. Satan had to be... Um, tossed out of heaven in the remote past. Otherwise, that serpent couldn't have been in the garden. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, Herod the Great wouldn't have been the, the great red dragon that tried to slay the Christ child.
1: Yeah, I wrote some uh, papers on, I don't, I don't know how money I distributed on Herod uh, and his family and, and, and that type of thing.
0: Oh, right. They were Edomite Jews, that, that they were from that line that descended from Cain. And, and Christ tells the Edomites, the Edomite Sadducees in the temple that were appointed to the priesthood by Herod the Great, that they were descendants of Cain. He told them that explicitly when, when he told them that they were guilty for the blood of Abel. And, and there are many other ways to put the two seed line story together. But even though they made some very good connections between John 8, 44 and Genesis 3, 15 and Matthew 13, 38, and the wheat and the tares, they made some very good connections in Jude 6 with the fallen angels. They made some very good connections in that cross-reference system. They still don't have the whole story that they only have a little little pieces of it. And, and they don't sew the whole thing up, but which is um, incredible to me it can only be explained that they by, by the fact that maybe they don't want to sew it up. They can't sew it up because they, they, they basically risk their well-being if they sewed it up. that they wouldn't be um, editors of the study Bible if they tried to sew it up. Not even Jerry Falwell. Moses died and was buried without any recorded disputation. There was no disputation over the literal body of Moses when he died. It said he was he died and he was buried on a mountain. And, and then Joshua led the children of Israel in, into the land of Canaan a, a short time later. And there's no recorded disputation over the body of Moses. So I imagine that Jude is being allegorical. I understand Michael in Jude, in in that passage of Jude, it's my understanding that Michael is probably an allegory for Christ, and the devil is an allegory for the Jews in control of the temple who disputed with Christ over the law and the scriptures, and the law and the scriptures are being called allegorically the body of Moses. That's my opinion. I can't prove that, but that's my opinion. Even though we could not avoid having already raised this subject, now you turn to discuss one of the biggest pitfalls of the modern biblical study materials, which is futurism. And the idea that all of the prophecy relating to the end times will be realized, what will not be realized until some far-off time in the future. And that's what futurism is, right? It takes all of these prophecies regarding the end times And and it says they're all going to happen in a three and a half year period or a seven year period far off in the future. I I don't know if you want to if you want to read some of that, that this is. um...
1: As we proceed, we will find there are two different entities who have been uh, rightfully or wrongly identified as Antichrist. We will find these two entities uh, were and, or, and are one, the Edomite Herod the Great and all of his co religionist uh, countrymen to the present day, and two, The Office of the Pope of the Catholic Church. I am now prepared to discuss one of the greatest religious frauds ever perpetrated in all of the history of churchanity. From the History of the Church by Philip Schaff, under the heading Notes. the number 666 we are informed paul uh, designates the antichrist as the man of sin the son of uh, perdition who opposes and exalts himself against all that is called god or that is worshiped so that he saith in the temple of, he sitteth in the temple of God, uh, setting himself forth as God. 2 Thessalonians uh, 2 uh, verses 3 and 4, but he seems to look upon the Roman Empire as a uh, restraining power, which for a time at least prevented the full Outbreak of the uh, mystery of lawlessness, uh, then already at work. Uh, uh, Two verses six and eight. We thus, he thus wrote a year or two before the uh, ascension of Nero, and uh, sixteen years. Or more before the uh, uh, composition of the uh, apartment ap- 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 apocalypse that
0: now, now here yeah you know I, I don't know how these people take themselves seriously right because Paul is clearly talking about a man of sin who's sitting in the temple of God pretending to be a god pretending for himself to be God and that Schaff Philip Schaff, followed the flawed supposition that Nero was the Antichrist, but Nero wasn't sitting in the temple of God two years before he became the Roman Emperor, pretending to be God when Claudius was still the emperor, even though Schaff's resulting estimate of the dating of the writing of the epistles to the Thessalonians is correct, they were actually written um one and two thessalonians were written while paul was in corinth in 50 or 51 a.d so that's about three or four years before nero became the emperor and nero ascended to the position of emperor in 54 a.d so even though um shaft got that part right he, he he still followed the flawed supposition that nero was the antichrist So his chronology is close, but it's for all the wrong reasons. Also, Schaff evidently thought that the revelation from this, right, from what he just said, was written around 70 A.D. Although many early Christian testimonies, and I think when I did my Christ Strike, my revelation series, I pointed out about six early Christian witnesses, that the revelation was really written around 90 A.D. or maybe a little later. But in any event, Paul's man of sin is not some far off in the future antichrist, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's because Paul used present tense verbs in his remarks concerning the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He was using, Paul was using present tense verbs. And therefore, he was certainly not referring to some individual who would arise in the future. How could he use present tense verbs? In that same passage, uh, I'm sorry, he he was rather describing someone who was operating as he wrote, because Paul was using present tense verbs. In that same passage, Paul also explained, with past tense verbs that the man of apostasy had already come, the apostasy had already come, and that the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, had already been revealed. That's what Paul said in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, of course, that revelation, that revelation happened during the ministry of Christ. The man of lawlessness was revealed When Christ told the Jews, You're of your father the devil. That's when the man of lawlessness was revealed. The man of lawlessness was was revealed when Christ said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, about seven times in Matthew chapter 21, 23, right? The man of lawlessness was revealed in in luke chapter 10 when christ told the apostles that he gave them power over serpents and scorpions the man of lawlessness was revealed in luke chapter 11 when christ told his adversaries that they were responsible for all the blood of all the prophets from the blood of abel to the blood of zechariah all of it that's when the man of lawlessness was revealed in the ministry of christ so, uh, uh, Paul said that the man of lawlessness had already been revealed in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, of course, these things had to happen as the ministry of Christ came to its conclusion. So, Paul could not have been speaking of a future post-millennial antichrist, and he could not have been speaking about Nero. Instead, Paul was referring to the same collective antichrist to which John had referred, John said that the Antichrist were the people that denied that Jesus was the Christ. Jude said that those, that those intruders who were condemned from the beginning, who denied the Lord Jesus Christ, they're the Antichrist. I'm, I'm sorry, not, that they are the, the, the Antichrist. So now you quote from another source concerning that this method of biblical interpretation, which these errant sources employed to arrive at their false doctrines. And, and I'm glad you found this, because when you addressed this topic of futurism years ago, you didn't quote from this source, as, as far as I remember. And, and this is a much better um, outline than I think the one you wrote 10 years ago. I really do, on on this futurism.
1: From uh, Leroy Edwin Fromm, uh, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, um, Prophetic uh, Interpretations, Volume 2, Review and Herald, Washington, D.C., 1948 uh, excerpted pages
0: You've exerted this from pages 464
1: to 532. Jesuits introduced futurist uh, counter-interpretation for some time following the launching of the uh, Reformation uh, Roman Catholic leadership uh, carefully avoided uh, exposition of the um, prophecies of Daniel and the the, uh, Apocalypse. They uh, seemed unable to um, parry the force of the uh, incriminating uh, Protestant applications of the prophecies concerning Antichrist which were uh, uh, undermining the very foundation of the Catholic position. Upon the first uh, outbreak of Luther's uh, anti papal uh, protests to Catholic uh, doctors uh P R I E R E the the first outbreak of Luther's and and E E E C K in in the true spirit of the Fifth Lateran Council, fifteen twelve to fifteen seventeen, had boldly uh, reassured that the Lateran theory and the uh, and declared the uh, papal uh, nomination to be Dominion. Daniels. fifth uh, m- m- monarchy uh, or reign of the saints and identified the uh, existing roman church with the new Jerusalem.
0: Let, let me summarize that, right, right? What What's going on during the Reformation is that the reformers Those who are writing in favor of of the Protestants against the Roman church, they're claiming that Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7, and the Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 13, identify the Roman Pope as the Antichrist. And we agree with that today, to this day, do we not? I mean, we've both written papers on that agreeing with the reformers from 600 years ago that daniel 7 and revelation 13 identify the pope as the antichrist mm-hmm. as, as as the beast anyway the little horn of daniel 7 and the beast the second beast of revelation chapter 13 are the describing the roman catholic church and the popes and and that i that that identity was made first in the 15th century in the 1400s. So the church, that these um, two Catholic doctors, Priarius and Eck, during the Fifth Lateran Council, that they were among the most learned Catholic priests of the time, during the Fifth Lateran Council, they boldly reasserted. And declared the papal dominion to be Daniel's fifth monarchy. They were claiming that the Roman, that the Holy Roman Empire and the papal dominions were Daniel's fifth kingdom of Daniel chapter two. Mm-hmm. That's what they were claiming. They were stretching the first four kingdoms and making the Roman Catholic Church the fifth, right? And... and They identified the Roman Catholic Church with the New Jerusalem. Now, this Eck is Johann Eck. He was a frequent adversary of Martin Luther, notably in the debates concerning indulgences, which were Luther's primary motivation for his 95 Theses and his ultimate break with the Roman Church. Because Johann Johann Eck was the primary Catholic Priest defending the indulgences. And this Prierius is Sylvester Prierius, and he was also one of Luther's theological opponents. And he wrote one pamphlet against Martin Luther that was titled On the Pope as an infallible teacher. And that's talking about Pope Leo X de' Medici. Giovanni de Medici was Pope Leo X. <laughs> so hester prierius called him an infallible teacher <laughs> and and really i think he was a greasy old kike <laughs> that's just my opinion so so now you you, you can continue with your um with, with your citation there uh-huh. i, I want to think we um I, I think i lost your place right there
1: But the reformers with the declaration by Penn and Boyce uh, forcefully stated that the papacy was the uh, specified antichrist of prophecy, the symbol of Daniel, uh, Paul, and John were applied with uh, tremendous effect. Hundreds of books and uh, tracts impressed their uh, contention upon the consciousness consciousness of Europe. Indeed, it uh, gained so great a hold upon the minds of the men that Rome in alarm saw that she must successfully Uh, contrast this identification of Antichrist with the papacy or lose the battle. The Jesuits were uh, summoned to the aid of the extremity and cleverly provided the very method needed both for uh, defense and for Attacks.
0: But well, well, the um, yeah, the, the the identification of the Pope as the Antichrist in the fourteenth, fourteen hundreds and fifteen hundreds was very successful. And and there's a lot of artwork on Costagani on my website from that period, depicting that I, I have a lot of um woodcut reproductions and cartoon reproductions, sort of like, and and they depict the Pope as the Antichrist. And and I actually have one of them on, on the announcement for tonight's program, that dates to the 1400s, to the 15th century. That's it, it's a hundred years before Luther depicting the the Pope as the Antichrist, because the Reformation really started it, it started to build up long before Luther. It, it there were a lot of people calling for reform within the church before Luther broke with the church and and took that bold step to to start his own. We wouldn't consider the papacy to be the Antichrist. The Jews are the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. But the papacy is a tool in the hand of the Jews. I I mean, it says in Revelation chapter 13 that the dragon gives its power to the beast. (laughs) And... That little horn of Daniel chapter 7 represents the popes from the time of Justinian. And that second beast, of the first beast of Revelation 13, can be identified with that series of empires that ruled over the children of Israel for 1260 years. And the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 is clearly identified with the popes. And the popes ruled over the children of Israel in Europe. For another 1260 years. So we don't consider the Pope properly to be the Antichrist. However, we have demonstrated in in your writing and, and in my own in Christ's Reich that the office of the papacy fulfilled that prophecy of the second beast of Revelation in chapter 13 as well as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 that spoke great words against the most high and changed the times and the laws
1: justinian
0: right that's justinian exactly so now you you might want to continue from where you where i interrupted you
1: from the uh, from the ranks of the jesuit uh, two stalwart arose uh determined to lift the uh, stigma from the papacy by locating uh, Antichrist at some point where he could not be uh, applied to the Roman church. It was clearly a crisis of major proportions. Two conflicting alternatives uh, brought forth. Rome's uh, answer to the uh, Protestant Reformation was uh, twofold, though actually uh, conflicting and uh, contradictory. Uh, through the Jesuit Ribera and uh, Salamanca, Spain, and, and uh, Spain. uh,
0: Well, well, through the Jesuits, Ribera of Salmanica, Spain, that's where he was from, and Bellarmine of Rome. Bellarmine
1: of Rome, the papacy uh, put forth her future uh, interpretation. Uh, Almost simultaneously, Alcazar, Spanish uh, Jesuit, and Seville uh, advanced the... uh, conflicting uh, preterist interpretation. These were uh, designed to meet and overwhelm the historical interpretation of the Protestants. Uh, Though mutually, uh, though mutually.
0: Exclusive.
1: Exclusive either Jesuit uh, alternative suited the, the great objective equally well as uh, both thrust aside the application of the uh, prophecies from the existing church of, the, of Rome the one uh, preterism uh, accomplish it by making a prophecy stop altogether short of the papal Rome's career. The other futurism, actually it, by making it overleap the uh, immense era of the papal dominance, uh, crowding Antichrist into a small fragment of time in the still distant future, just uh, before the great consummation. It is uh, consequently often called the gap theory.
0: Now, now, I want to explain what this gap theory is, but, but first let me say that, that basically the church, the, the accusations of the Pope being the Antichrist were very successful. The propaganda was very good. And people started to believe it. So the Pope, the, the church panicked and needed to come out with propaganda to counter it. So they got these Jesuit priests and, and they devised both preterism and futurism. Any interpretation of prophecy that would put the Antichrist in a time frame outside of the domination of the Roman church. So that the church could continue to claim its legitimacy. And one way to do that was preterism. And the other way was futurism. And with preterism, all prophecy is fulfilled before the Roman church comes into existence. And with futurism, all prophecy is going to be fulfilled. at some time so far off in the future that nobody cares. And that's what we're stuck with today. And people believed all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> one way or the other. And the church, the, not only was the Roman church able to protect itself, but it's been able to protect the Jews because nobody identifies the Antichrist with who they should identify the Antichrist, which is the Jews that deny that Jesus is the Christ. The gap theory is a reference to a corrupt interpretation of Daniel 70 weeks. And I think you've written on this gap theory somewhere early in your writings. This theory actually once again relieves the Jews as being the subjects of Yahweh's wrath because it breaks Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy away from the initial 69 weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And it projects the 70th week far into the future as part of a final week of tribulation under a superhuman antichrist you have written about this yeah Uh, this is the so-called gap between the 69th and the 70th weeks of daniel's prophecy which clearly betrays the context of the passage itself it's just a ridiculous interpretation but there are people that cling to this to this day Yeah, you do you want to continue uh, if you getting if you're getting tired just let me know
1: roman catholics as well as protestants agree as to the origin of these interpretations the roman catholic writer c s hitchcock says uh, the future school founded by the Jesuit Ribera in 1591 looks for Antichrist uh, Babylon and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the end of the uh, Christian dispensation. The uh, preterism school founded by the Jesuit Alcazar in 1614 explains the revelation by the fall of Jerusalem or by the fall of pagan Rome in 410 A.D. Uh, C.S. Hitchcock, uh, The Beast and the Little Horn, page 7. So, uh, similarly, Dean Henry uh, Alford, um, Protestant in the uh, something.
0: De- Dean Henry Alford, who, who was a Protestant, right? He was a, an, an English Protestant in the prolegomena to his that it, it's like the prologue to his Greek New Testament declares.
1: The uh, founder of the uh, system, futurist in in modern times, appears to have been the Jesuit uh, Rivera about AD uh, 1580, uh, Henry Alford, uh, the new uh the new testament for english readers volume 2 part 2 page 35
0: page 351 i'm sorry that that that's where where you're getting that that's where you quoted this from from dean henry alford who who was actually um a very respected respected scholar for his time He, he was quoted in in quite a few books I read, actually.
1: The preterism view found no favor and was hardly hardly so much as thought of in the times of the primitive Christianity. The view is said to have been first promul- promulgated in. Anything, uh, anything
0: like. uh, Anything like completeness by the Jesuit
1: by the Jesuit Alcazar in 1614, I bib.
0: That that uh, also comes from Henry Alford in in the New Testament for English readers on, on pages 348 and 349. That That's what you have there. Uh, I'm sorry. Maybe it's difficult for you to read here because the light's not that good.
1: Yeah. Uh...
0: Al- Alcazar, <clears throat> this Alcazar was the basically um, Dean Alford is saying that Alcazar is the, the first one to really um, write out this preterist view of the of of the fulfillment of prophecy he's more fully known as Luis del alcazar alcazar being a city in spain right his book an investigation of the mysterious sense of the revelation where it set forth the preterist view of prophecy was first published in 1614 you might want to um pick up your citation with francis francisco ribera francisco uh, ribera
1: 1537 to 1591 since it's uh, inception uh his basic thesis has been virtually unchanged he assigned the first few chapters of the uh, Apocalypse to the ancient Rome in John's own time. The rest he uh, restricted to a limit of three and a half years reign of the uh, infidel Antichrist who would uh, bitterly oppose and blaspheme the saints just before the uh, second advent thought that antichrist would be a single individual who would uh, rebuild the temple in jerusalem abolish christian religion deny christ be received by the jews uh, pretend to be God and conquer the world, all of this brief space of three and one-half years.
0: Yeah, right. He, he's going to get all this done in three and a half years, That this Antichrist, this supernatural Antichrist they're looking for. Ribera also wrote a book. It, it was a commentary on a revelation and, and that was written in 1585. He died only a few years later. And in contrast to these attempts by the Jesuits, Martin Luther had said in August of 1520 that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. So it basically took the, these, um, it, it took these Jesuits several decades, 65 years from the time of Luther to come up with a, a system of the interpretation of prophecy to counter the claims of the reformers that the Pope was the Antichrist. It, it took 65 years for, after Luther's statement for Ribera to come up with this system of futurism and and it took um, 95 years for Alcazar to come up with the system of preterism, 95 years after Luther said that the papacy is is the seed of the true and real Antichrist. And as I've said, at Christigenia, we have reproductions of woodcuts and other artwork depicting the pope as the Antichrist, some of which date back to the 1400s. Continuing with, with Clifton, he's going to cite yet another source to explain how futurism made its way into Protestant theology. Even though it began, it, it basically began as a heresy contrived in order to counter Protestant truths, right? Uh, I mean, futurism began as a heresy that was just invented in, in order to defel- deflect criticism from the Pope.
1: <clears throat> we find a following from the Trinity Foundation on the internet under an article titled, Antichrist, Futurism. Futurism first entered Protestantism in the uh, 19th century, England, by two uh, apparently widely separated developments, the first was the uh, appearance of a uh, Romanizing tendency uh, in the Church of England. Briefly, the uh, Development was, uh, as follows. Dr. Samuel R. Uh, Middleland, 1792 to, uh, 1866, uh, curate of, uh, Christ Church at, uh, Gloucester, or something like that and later uh, Librarian uh, to, to the uh, Archbishop of uh, Canterbury was the first notable uh, Protestant scholar to attempt to accept the uh, Riberian, uh interpretation of the A- Antichrist. Middle end held the um, Reformation in open contempt and freely uh, admitted that his view of the uh, prophecy uh, I'm blurring out for my uh, sight.
0: Yeah, you're getting tired. Clifton's getting tired. Maitland... Malin held the Reformation in open contempt and freely admitted that his view of prophecy coincided with Roman Catholic interpretation, which I guess he got from Ribera and not from Alcazar, right? Because he have been a, pre- a preterist if he got it from Alcazar. The Roman Catholics didn't have what one single interpretation that, that I've ever known that, that was encoded into any doctrine. Maitland's views were first published in 1826 and received widespread study and interest. James H. Todd, who lived from 1805 to 1869, professor of Hebrew at the University of Dublin, studied and accepted Maitland's futuristic views. He strongly attacked the reformers' historical system of prophetic interpretation. Todd's views were published and widely circulated among the theologians of his time. John Henry Newman, who lived from 1801 to 1890, a famous high church Anglican who converted to Rome and became a cardinal, was one of the leading spirits in the Oxford or Tractarian movement. Five years before he joined the Roman State Church, Newman advocated Todd's futurism in a tract called The Protestant Idea of Antichrist. Newman wrote, we had pleasure in believing that in matters of doctrine, we entirely agree with Dr. Todd. The prophecies concerning Antichrist are as yet unfulfilled and that the predicted enemy of the church is yet to come. In other words, the Jews have never been here, I guess. So essentially, identity Christians are the closest of all Christians to the method of prophetic interpretation, which was used by the reformers. And we are the closest of all Christians to the identity of the antichrist set forth by the apostles. Because all the denominational churches deny those things, Clifton. Mm -hmm. Through the publication and dissemination of thousands of tracts, the Oxford movement, leavened English Protestantism with the idea that the reformer's understanding of Antichrist was untrustworthy. It effectively diverted attention from Rome to some unknown person to come in the future. About the same time as the development of the Oxford movement, there was another development in England which played a decisive role in bringing futurism within the Protestant movement there was a growing disenchantment with the deadness of the established churches a reaction against the spiritualizing tendency of post-millennialism with its tendency towards modernism and preterism and the revival of hope in the soon coming of christ and the last things two religious leaders played an important role in these developments edward irving who was who lived from 1792 to 1834. Born in Scotland and a brilliant Presbyterian teacher, became a noted expositor in the British Advent Awakening. At first a historicist in his approach to the prophecies, Irving came to adopt futuristic views. He despaired of the church being able to complete her gospel mission commission by the ordinary means of evangelism, and began to believe and preach about the miraculous return of the gifts and power of the early church. In 1831, the gift of tongues and other prophetic utterances made their appearance among his followers. First in Scotland, among some women, and then in London, Irving never detected the imposture and gave credence to these new revelations. An imposture is an instance of pretending to be someone else in order to deceive others. Our source continues, under the influence of these revelations of the Holy Ghost by other tongues, a new aspect was added to the expectation of a future Antichrist, the rapture of the church before the advents of Antichrist and Christ. The origin of this theory has embarrassed some of its advocates, and the defenders of this novel theory have tried to deny its historical beginning. But the discovery in a rare book by Dr. Robert Norton entitled The Restoration of Apostles and Prophets in the Catholic Apostolic Church, published in 1861, establishes the origin of this innovative doctrine beyond all question. Norton was a participant in the Irvingite movement. The idea of a two-stage coming of Christ first came to a Scottish lass, Miss Margaret MacDonald of Port Glasgow, Scotland, while she was in a prophetic trance. Norton actually preserved Miss MacDonald's pre-tribulation vision and prophetic utterance in his book. He wrote, Marvelous light was shed upon scripture, and especially on the doctrine of the second advent by the revived spirit of prophecy. In the following account by Miss M. M., or Margaret MacDonald, of an evening during which the power of the Holy Ghost rested upon her for several successive hours in mingled prophecy and vision, we have an instance, for here we see the first distinction between that final stage of the lord's coming when every eye shall see him and his prior appearing in glory to them that look for him <clears throat> a little later the idea of the secret pre-tribulation rapture was adopted and polished by the plymouth brethren in their founding power court conferences of the 1830s s p Tregelles, who participated in the power court conferences admitted that the brethren obtained the idea of the rapture from the Irvingite movement. He wrote, I am not aware that there was any definite teaching that there should be a secret rapture of the church at a secret coming until this was given forth as an utterance in Mr. Irving's church from what was then received as being the voice of the Spirit. But whether anyone ever asserted such a thing or not, It was from that supposed revelation that the modern doctrine and the modern phraseology respecting it arose. And that's from The Hope of Christ's Coming, page 35, cited by George Murray in a book, Millennial Studies, A Search for Truth, published by Baker Bookhouse in 1960 on page 138. The source continues and says that John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882, one of the prominent founders of the movement often known as Plymouth Brethren, was not only an ardent futurist, but he added another new dimension to the futuristic scheme, dispensationalism. Oswald T. Alice wrote in his book, Prophecy in the Church, that the dispensational teaching of today as represented for example by the schofield reference bible can be traced back directly to the brethren movement which arose in england and ireland about the year 1830. its adherents are often known as plymouth brethren because plymouth was the strongest of the early centers of brethrenism it is also called darbyism after john nelson darby who lived from 1800 to 1882, its most conspicuous representative. The primary primary features of this movement were two in number, the one related to the church. It was the result of the profound dissatisfaction felt at that time by many earnest Christians with the worldliness and temporal security of the Church of England and of many of the dissenting communions in the British Isles. The other had to do with prophecy. It represented a very marked emphasis on the coming of the Lord as a present hope and immediate expectation. These two doctrines were closely connected. There is much more that could be discussed. And now we're back to Clifton's words. There is much more that could be discussed concerning the subjects of futurism and preterism. However, one should be starting to grasp the danger that these satanic heresies propagate and are now widespread amid about 99.9% of judeo Christianity today. Do not, take, do not take my word for all of this, but prove it for yourself. We can now comprehend why we must be guarded in using biblical commentaries lexicons, and dictionaries as they can seriously damage or destroy one's intellectual ability. So now we can see how an anti-Reformation lie has come to be accepted as doctrine by Protestants worldwide, and the irony is strong enough to make one scream in frustration because it has added the effect of blinding christians everywhere as to the nature of the, the true antichrist which is the jews those who deny that yahshua is the christ there are many other pitfalls to be wary of when using bible commentaries dictionaries and lexicons and i pray that clifton and i are able to discuss more of them in the future Clifton should know many of them much better than I, as he has read a plethora of such works which now occupy the shelves here in our home. Do you have any closing remarks Clifton
1: Well, all this is interesting and important to understand these things
0: well- well, right, I mean these are just some of the problems that we've outlined are some of the problems with these reference materials, but it's so easy to open up a, I I don't care if it's a Greek grammar or or a a lexicon or, or a commentary or, or the notes in a Bible, even the most innocuous notes can trip people up. Right. And, and when we, I, I don't know my, my, um, you're, you're going, you're, you're trying to tiptoe through a minefield when you're in a Bible commentary. Right. So, so my approach from the beginning was to just ignore all the Bible commentaries. <laughs> Maybe someday people will say that about my Bible commentaries. <laughs> I, I don't know. I pray not. I, I just try to study the original sources and, and not have to tiptoe through those minefields. Would you do it any different if you did it, if you go back 40 years? Quite a bit. You would?
1: A lot of things, a lot differently.
0: What would you do different? Name name a couple of them.
1: Oh. I I can't think right now. My mind's just kind of rolling around. You're just tired. Yeah. I'm sorry. But I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, over that period of time that there's several things that I would do differently. If I could go back to that point and, and live that portion of my life over again, I, there's, there's things that i do differently.
0: Okay. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Christian. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening.